This is the Seafair Investor Podcast, bringing you the tides on investing and personal finance from two millennial seafarers and alike. I am your host, Soshin, a full-time seafarer, a value investor, and a personal finance enthusiast. Welcome to episode 28. This is another episode that I'm really excited to share because I am having another person that I only used to listen on the podcast. And my guest today is Dave Ahern, co-host of Andrew Sater in the Investing for Beginners podcast. He is also based in the US and was previously involved in the banking industry before he went full-time doing podcasts. His voice of reason and the way he delivers complicated investing concepts helped me a lot when I was just starting in investing for almost two years ago now. (laughs) And in our conversation, it really shows how good he explains. We also talk a lot about his journey and the insights he got from from those. But the highlights of the episode is with us talking about investing misconceptions, biases, and valuations, especially with valuing a behemoth like Berkshire Hathaway. Anyway, without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Dave Ahern of the Investing for Beginners podcast. Dave Ahern, welcome to the Seafer Investor Podcast. Thank you. I'm 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 excited to be here today. This is yeah. Be a I'm lot of more fun. excited than you are. So so yeah. Let's get get get, <laughs> uh, get this going. As I said, you know, with my our previous guests before, to which I just listened to them in the podcast, and now I am talking with them here in my own show. It still feel surreal talking to you. So <laughs> so again. Thank you for doing the Investing for Beginners podcast with Andrew, as it really helped me a few years ago in finding my way through the world of investing. So I appreciate it a lot. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, it, it it it's it's an honor to be here, and and Andrew and I are touched that we have been able to help you know some people along the way because that's really what we are trying to do. It wasn't about us. It was it was about trying to help people that we saw a need for, whether it was you know in my previous background or his, and we just felt like there there was an opportunity to try to help people because there's there's so much misinformation or just not good resources, especially for beginners, and we just felt like that this was something we could do to help people so the fact that it was able to help you and that you were able to you know entertain yourself as well as you know learn something while you were on your long mm-hmm. sea voyages is is really kind of touching to me it, it kind of makes me yeah. feel good i also share your uh, sentiment as to why i started the podcast also because um a lot of my you know fellow seafarers are really uh, um, have a hard time not a hard time but always led to this bad uh, investment uh, um, mistakes that that could have been easily you know um, avoided by just one Google search. So yeah, I share your sentiment on the podcast, and I'm really grateful for it. But now I, I want to start this conversation with a curious question that I got from you know Tim Ferriss. <laughs> but so so what's the okay. worst investing advice you've heard personally so far? Ooh, what's the worst? 
Boy, that's a good question. Oh, let's see. What is the worst investing advice I've ever heard? I think probably some of the worst investing advice I think I've ever heard would be follow your passions or along those lines, buy anything that you think is going to be a good investment without doing any due diligence or doing any Mm -hmm. research. And I guess let me kind of explain some of the why that would be. If you if you follow your passions and you invest in something, sometimes you know Peter Lynch had this you know advice that a lot of people have followed for a long time that you should invest in something that you know. And his you know a lot of people thought, well, hey, I should go out and buy Starbucks because I buy coffee mm-hmm. from there every day. Well, just because you shop at at Starbucks or because you shop at Walmart every single day doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be a great investment. Um, you know, for all those uh, unfortunate investors in <laughs> Peloton so far, uh, they have learned that the hard way. Just because the bike is great and just because the service may be great with all the teachers and everything, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a great investment. You have to do your due diligence on the company the management, what they're doing, where they're going, and looking at the history of fitness in the investment world. It's not, doesn't have a great mm-hmm. track record at all. And it tends to be kind of fad like, and that's kind of what's proving out with Peloton. And I'm not bashing the company and I'm not bashing the, the products themselves. From what I understand, I've never personally used them, but from what I understand, they're awesome, but doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a great investment. And kind of the same would apply with a Starbucks or a Walmart, depending on what it is that you're trying to buy. So there, there's that. Now, let's say that you're in an industry that is maybe not mainstream or maybe is a little more uh, exotic or doesn't have a lot of organic growth potential, then that may not necessarily be the greatest investment. I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm just, I'm drawing a mm-hmm. blank. I'm sorry. But uh, let's see. Let's say that you're into, I'm really into, um, let's say, how about art? I'm really, really into art. Well, investing in art is, it could be very challenging. And because you either have to go the, I have to go buy it at auction route, or you have to use a, a, you know, a, a company like Masterworks. And there isn't a lot of other options out there. And Masterworks is a great company. We had we had the CEO on our on our show a while back, and very smart guy. I really liked him, and I hope that that does well in in the, in the future. But there isn't a lot of options, and so if art is something that's really your passion, you know that's awesome. But maybe investing in it is maybe not the greatest route to you know long term wealth. So you know unless you have lots of money. So I guess those are I guess some of my thoughts. I'm, I'd be curious what are your thoughts? What is what is the worst what is the worst uh investing advice now that's a reverse uh, uno card I, I didn't I didn't expect that one. <laughs> but uh yeah let, let me uh, think for a minute. <laughs> I didn't expect that one. It's with you know my, and in this, I, I'm not, I'm not sure, but it's always in this. My fellow millennials, you know, do, doing um, YOLO, you know, because you only live once. It doesn't, um, it doesn't make sense to save your money a lot because you know you you only come twenty five only once. But you, when you arrive at forties, you you have nothing to look back because you 
because you save a lot. But I, I don't follow that uh, YOLO or you live only once uh, thing on on um, savings, you know, or or investing. But uh, for me, it's more on you can enjoy life without you know putting a hole in your pocket. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you need to um, spend all of your um, ma- money or paycheck on on experiences alone it's there's there are a lot of really cheap experiences that won't put a hole in your pocket like in, in myself it's it's you know um climbing mountains here in the philippines is really cheap i mean of course the gears can be quite expensive but you're you don't need to rush buying those and hiking mountains also have does, doesn't also give you this wealth you know savings but also health also it's really good for your body so so my point is it's 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 not um going yolo is not bad but it doesn't mean to put a hole in your pocket so that's what i always tell my other friends (laughs) yeah that's great advice no i like that yeah so now i i want to um move on to um asking asking you about your your journey because i i have i have I have Andrew now in, in my podcast before and I've known his journey, but, and also mm-hmm. it's al- always about his journey. I don't know, but I have only heard snippets about yours. I, I know you started in the banking industry, but I want to, I want to know how, how you started investing. And more importantly is why did you choose the path of picking individual stocks or instead of going indexing? Oh, that's a good question. So, all right. Well, I'll rewind a bit. So yes, I did. I did. I did transition into finance through the banking industry. So I got a job at Wells Fargo as a personal banker. And one of the first things that they do when you uh, start working for them, once you get into your branch, is they you sit down with the manager and they kind of talk about what are the things that you're interested in, where do you want to go? Because at the time, the bank was very interested in trying to develop people. And they wanted to start you on the path as quickly as you possibly could. And frankly, I really didn't really know at that point. And I had, there was a uh, financial advisor that worked in our branch. Not every branch had one, but we did. And financial advisors, for those not familiar with that term, those are people that help you create an investment plan. And there's different, many, many, many different ways to go about doing it. But their job is to sit down with wealthier individuals and kind of map out a strategy to help them earn more money, save money with taxes, insurance, just a a lot of different things. But anyway, uh, he was a really interesting guy and we kind of struck up a friendship. And one day he asked me, have you ever thought about becoming what I do? He said, I think I I hear you talk to your, your guests, your customers, and you're really good with them. And I think you'd be really good at this. Is this something you'd be interested in? I'm like, frankly, I really don't know much about it. So then he started kind of pointing me in the direction of trying to learn things. And so some of the things that I started reading right away were uh, the Motley Fool website had had at the time had a great intro kind of beginner level courses, not courses, but like a series of, of different articles you could read to kind of help educate yourself about what a stock is, what the stock market is, how it works, how, you know, how different companies invest and how you can invest in different kinds of investing and whatnot. And so that, that, that kind of set me down the path. And then I discovered uh, the company Microsoft and I, uh, the financial advisor suggested that I read their, their 10 K. 
And so at first it was like trying to learn a new language. <laughs> when I started to read through that thing, I was like, I, I, I didn't know anything. I was Googling like every third word. It was complete, uh, complete mystery to me, but I really liked it. And I saw how the company made money and it made sense to me and it was really interesting. And so it really kind of intrigued me about the whole business idea. And that's what really attracted me to investing in individual stocks was learning about the individual businesses. Uh, for example, the other day I was reading a great, uh, a great article about Twilio by um, mostly borrowed ideas from Twitter. And in the beginning section, they were talking about APIs, which I've heard of, I've read about them, but I really didn't know what they were. And he had some other great uh, writer, a guy named Justin from Technically, another Substack blog that writes about technical stuff that's very, he, he dumbs it down for people like me that are not technical, that don't understand some of those terms. And it made it really clear. And I was, I remember sitting here thinking, this is so cool. And now I can really understand all these companies that use APIs. And it just makes it so much more interesting to learn about how a company like Ajin does what they do or Twilio or Snowflake or, mm -hmm. you know, MongoDB or even Chevron and Exxon and you know anybody else. It's just all those companies, <coughs> excuse me, have, have a different business model. And to me, that's what's intriguing. And then the fact that I got hooked on Warren Buffett right away and I got hooked on Charlie Munger right away and Peter Lynch and all those great investors. And I also discovered Andrew at very, very, very early on uh, the blog post that, that I now am mm -hmm. doing with him investing for beginners. Uh, we, he was a, he was an inspiration to me. I signed up for his, his newsletter. I, I literally, I would get it every Tuesday and at lunch break, I would go down to the lunch room Ooh. and I would read the, 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 the newsletter he would send me every Tuesday. And he was one of my heroes. And so that's really kind of what started me on the path. But I, I discovered for me, it was just, I, it wasn't necessarily the power of in, in investing in individual stocks versus indexing or ETFs. For me, it was more about the curiosity of, of the businesses and how they operated. And then once I discovered more of the individual investors, then I discovered how powerful investing in individual stocks could be not that index investing is, mm -hmm. is bad mm -hmm. or that it's wrong. That's what I did in my 401k because I had no other choice. And I think it's, it's a great option for people. But for me, that was what really drew me to it. Yeah. Um, I also share also your perspective or view on doing, you know, doing individual, individual stocks because it's, there's this, you know, challenge on, um, combing through the, uh, the 10Ks, or as you call it in the U.S., but in our, in the Philippines, it's just called the annual report. You know, the, the, the challenge and this, um, this mental or intellectual challenge on reading the, the business models, you know, um, trying to predict their cash flows into the future and discount it to the present and such. It's, it's really interesting uh, endeavor. And also, it also pays you money in a sense that if you, hit the right ones of course you won't hit everyone but you know if you have the good odds or probabilities and and you enjoy the journey it, it's it really it's really nice but of course picking stocks is not for everybody i mean indexing is really okay i mean it's for most but for an indiv individual picking individual stocks uh, i actually sound sexy you know because you're wow yeah you you <laughs> because you own <laughs> right. oh, this and this but it's it's not an easy endeavor. I mean, I kind of forgot what, what which Charlie Munger quote. Um, he said that investing is uh, 
simple, but he never it. But it wasn't easy. Uh, yeah, I, I, if I, yeah, <laughs> I think that's a quote. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah, I want to transition into. I mean, what what's the? No, 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 not not that one. Sorry, um, I want to. I want. To, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of you know it's it's uh, sometimes our brain just short short wire in in some in some sense. <laughs> oh yes, brain farts all the time. I want to just stay on the because we're we're still talking on your beginnings. But I want to ask the. Can you share the time when you were just starting investing, and can you share your most memorable moments that you cannot forget until now when you were beginning? Oh yes, um, absolutely. So uh, I remember very vividly when I decided that I was going to buy my first stock, which was Microsoft. And this was back in 2014. So ironically, Andrew and I bought the same company in the same year and now we're working <laughs> together and, you know, and, and really good friends. And so, uh, so that's kind of ironic, but I, I remember when I decided to buy my first company, uh, I asked the financial advisor what brokerage account he recommended. And ironically, he didn't recommend Wells Fargo, which is kind of amusing. But um, so I opened one with, uh, it's now Ally Invest, but at the time it was Trade mm. King, I believe. And I'm, I think I'm blanking on that. It's been a few years now. But anyway, so I, I opened the brokerage account and that was super scary because they were asking me all these questions. I didn't know if I should use an IRA or if it should just be a brokerage account. I didn't know how much I needed to start. I didn't understand that I had to transfer money to the brokerage account and that it would take time before the money actually got there. So you had even that more I guess, anxiety of waiting for, you know, I just transferred $300 to a brokerage account and now I got to wait three days before I can actually pull the trigger. Um, that's <laughs> frustrating. And so you know, there was just all these emotions going on. And at the same time, I'm still stressing about, should it be Microsoft or should I pick something else? And I, you know, I just, I didn't know. It just seemed like there was just this world of, of possibilities. And I kept coming back to, what's going to help me sleep the best at night. And Microsoft is the company that I have, you know, air quote, done the most work on at this point, which was, you know, in hindsight, not that much, but uh, it just was a company. I felt like this was probably the the best one to start with. And Andrew had been encouraging me through his, his uh, e-letters to step out on a limb and, and just buy something, you know, break the, break the seal, buy something, buy one thing, and that'll help you get over some of the anxiety. And so when the, the money cleared the account, then I went, I went online and I bought, you know, the shares of Microsoft and it was exhilarating <laughs> and terrifying at the same time when I pressed the buy now button. And once I figured out that I had to, you know, I could buy it at a market price mm -hmm. or I could set a different price and all the different lingo. But once I kind of worked through that, then when I, once I hit the button, I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm, I'm investing. I'm an investor now. And I'll be honest with you, the first probably week, I probably checked the share price of that company. <laughs> You're never alone. A day. You're not alone. Um, I think it, <laughs> No, I, I, I remember, I remember putting up a, like a running ticker on my work, uh, on my work desktop so I could see the prices going by. And, you know, so even while I was trying to help somebody at, at my desk, I could still see what was going on with the Microsoft. And I learned after a while that I didn't really need to do that. But, uh, at first it was, it was terrifying. So I, I definitely did that. 
And then uh, once I started getting a little more comfortable that, hey, I, I bought this, I need to start you know, doing more research. Then I started looking for other ideas and I came across three or four different companies through other outlets to try to invest in. And uh, of the four, one of them ended up doing really well, which was Activision. Uh, the other three were complete dogs. Uh, they, they lost, they went up. It was one of those situations where you buy it and it went up right away. And you're like, oh, you know, investing <laughs> is easy. And then reality hit and it went, you know, and, and all three of those companies, uh, crashed terribly. I think they're still in business, but they're well, 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 <laughs> well below the price that I initially bought them at. And so I, I eventually, I think after about two years, I sold all, all three of them at a, at a loss. And sorry, sorry I remember, to interrupt, but how, how, how did you deal you know, with ahead. that such loss? You know, because you, you started really good and then suddenly it all comes crashing down. So how did you deal with such a failure? Uh, well, you, uh, I went through all the stages of grief, you know, <laughs> denial, anger, frustration, you know, resignation. Uh, so I went through all those, you know, those feelings of, you know, I am terrible at this. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, how, how do people do this? What was I thinking buying these companies? You know, just all the different ranges of emotions. And then, I came across a, a blog post online. I don't remember who wrote it, but they were talking about selling, you know, the, the difficulties of selling and why you need to basically, you know, you need to cut the weeds and, and water mm -hmm. the flowers as opposed to like what Peter Lynch says, you know, most people, you know, cut their flowers and, and water their weeds. I tried to do. Yeah, I tried to do the the opposite of that. So I ended up selling those those three companies. Uh, I, I just decided one day I was I was I remember I was I was at work and I was you know in the morning before my shift started and I looked up I looked at my brokerage account I saw these three companies and I thought you know what why they're never going to come back and you know some two of them I think were down over eighty percent from mm. where I had bought them and I came across this chart that showed how much you had to grow to overcome different levels of loss. And so for these companies to get back to even break even was like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like 900% gain or something stupid like that. So I'm like, we're done here. So, uh, I just, I sold them. I just sold them all. And then I took all that money and I put it into Microsoft. And, and that, and that proved really a good move actually, considering where they are now. Yeah. Yeah. It, Right in hindsight, you know, I mean, I had a, I had a choice, and I had a choice of continuing to try to wait, and but I guess I felt like after watching what the companies were doing, and I, you know, all this time for for those two years, I was learning more. I was you know learning more from the resources that I had, and just from the experience of watching what was going on with those companies, because all the things that the that the advice I had gotten to buy these companies had proven to be wrong. And so it wasn't necessarily that this person was a bad investor. It's just their, their vision of what the company could do was not the right one. And so I started, it, it set me on a journey of trying to learn more about how to invest, learning how to read financials, learning how to follow the inner goings on of the company, learning about the management and what they do and the business model and, and 
and trying to determine whether that business model is actually sustainable or viable now and into the future. And mm-hmm. you're not always going to be right. Like you said earlier, we're, we're going to miss, you know, a good investor hits on six out of 10, an average investor probably hits on four mm-hmm. to five out of 10. And that's normal. And so even Warren Buffett, as great as he is, he misses. Uh, and, you know, IBM in recent memory was not a great pick. And, you know, it's you know, even the best of us can make mistakes. So I think that's one thing that if people are, when people are listening to this is you can, you can learn from your mistakes. And I have for sure. Uh, it's, you know, those, those three in particular, I learned a lot because it gave me, you know, a two year window to try to improve my skills so that going forward, hopefully I would have a better hit rate on the companies that I'm investing in because I've learned from the experiences of seeing that, you know, yes, it, it's great that everybody's super enthused about this, but our people are going to actually buy it. And if they aren't, then it doesn't matter how great the product mm-hmm. is or the service. If nobody's buying it, the company's not viable. So you know, it, it, it's things that you just kind of learn along the way. Sometimes I think we learn more from our mistakes and our losses than we do from our winners. Because uh, sure. in, in, in winners, it's kind of, it's kind of sugarcoating what you should have really learned. But with mistakes, it's just raw. You know, it's bare. <laughs> it's in front of your face. It's, it's going to oh, slap yeah, it's you. Very raw. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm, I'm just curious also because I've asked my guests before. Um, this question and it's also a dilemma that i share in investing it's as uh, nick majuli uh, has, um, popular popularized this but in a sense that investing is is a game that you don't know if you're good at playing at playing at it it's not like basketball you know if you see a basketball player like a Le- lebron james he, of course he is really good in how he moves and immediately you know that he is good at basketball and he will perform good in the future. Mm-hmm. But with, with investing, it's it's not like that. It's even with people that have 15 years of outperformance, it's it's not a guarantee that next year it will continue. So how do you handle with this kind of dilemma that maybe you're just not good enough in investing? How do you deal with that dilemma? That is a great question. I think it comes down to your belief that you could make good decisions consistently. And I think there are several methods that people can use to help them try to be as consistent as they possibly can. I think one of the things that sets the great investors apart from the people that aspire to do as well as they do is they're very consistent in their actions and in their thought processes. They're even keeled as far as their temperament. They don't get super excited. They don't get super uh, depressed when things are going well or when things are going poorly. They're very, they're just very even keeled, very, very uh, unemotional or I guess, lacking in emotion. If you listen to Warren Buffett talk, or if you listen to Howard Marks talk, or Peter Lynch, or Seth Klarman, or Monish Pabrai, none of these people get very like super amped about something, but they also don't get super depressed about everything. They seem to be just kind of floating around uh, kind of in the middle of how they feel about things. And they, they just, they, they're able to detach what they're doing from their mental state. And I think some of the ways that they do this is number one, they read a lot. So they're, they're constantly trying to learn. 
And I think as if you're a curious person and as you go out into the world, you learn more stuff and all those things can help your process of investing. The other thing is for me is writing things down, is having a journal, whether it's writing on a blog like Substack or Seeking Alpha or even creating your own blog and, and, and putting things on paper helps you twofold. Number one, it helps you learn. Because you realize very quickly when you start to write what you know and what you don't know. And so that helps you fill in the gaps quickly. Number two is it's a historical recording of your thoughts at that time. So if you write about a company, let's say that you pick Apple and you are super excited about the company, you think it's going to be a great investment and you write down all the ideas of why you think that's going to be. And then let's say that that investment thesis doesn't play out and you go back and read your thoughts from a year ago, you may look at yourself and go, oh, what an idiot. Or you <laughs> may look at it and go, wow, I was a genius. Uh, but you can take that historical document and you can use it as a means of learning from it and updating your notes. Every time the company puts out a quarterly report, you read through it and you discover something new about Tim Cook or something new about the company that you can detail in that journal. And it becomes an ongoing conversation with yourself about what your investment thought was, your process, your thesis, all those different ideas. If you put all that down on paper, it's much easier to go back and in retrospect, look at what you were thinking at the time. And if you are incorrect on your idea or you are wrong about something, it's all right there in black and white and it's really hard to escape from. And if you're a rational person, you use that to try to correct for the next time that you make an investment. And sometimes that may be in the middle of picking something new or it could, could be in something that you already own and then you can transition out of that company. Um, so th I think those are, those are the ways that I try to overcome that. Uh, I don't have any hubris that I'm the next Warren Buffett. I don't have any ego to, th to think that I'm going to be the next Monish Pabrai. I'm just trying to be as good as Dave Ahern can be. And that's all I can be. I can't compare myself to Andrew. I can't compare myself to you. I have to compare myself to me and I have to do the best that I can. I can learn from other people. Certainly, but I, you know, I, I, I can't compete with Warren Buffett because he's the greatest ever. And that's not my, my job is not to compete with him. My job is to do the best that I can do. I, I highly agree because as, as Charlie Munger said to the secret in life or in investing is to keep your expectations low. So, uh, having this, uh, you know, yardstick against yourself is the best way as you're only competing for yourself. But uh, of course, it's easier said than done because we're we're just humans. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, 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 yeah, for sure, yeah, for sure. I think I think so many people get wrapped up in comparing themselves either to other investors or the S and P five hundred that that becomes the goal to beat that. And uh, although, yeah, of course, we all want to beat it or we all want to match it. But I think the the other part of that is is that you have to. You have to be humble enough to understand when you're making mistakes and when you're doing things well and try to replicate those as best you can, because that's really the only way that you're going to get to whatever it is that your goal is, whether it's, you know, retiring early or whether it's having 20% returns over the mm -hmm. next, you know, 50 years. Good luck with that, uh, by the way. But um, anyway, so I think um, it's just, you know, being humble, uh, that's I think that's really, really important skill or 
uh, personality trait to have when you're investing in individual stocks because the stock market will humble you very, very quickly. Uh, if you're, <laughs> if you get a little bit arrogant or th- get a little ahead of yourself, it, it, it will smack you hard. Yeah. It will smack you. Uh, at, at times that you really don't don't expect so <laughs> i highly agree mm-hmm. now I, I want to ask as you've been um investing for a while now like many many years and then of course you have friends know you about investing so i want to ask like what's their you know biggest misconception on how they view the stock market ooh that's a good question that's a really good question i think it kind of depends on who you talk to. Uh, I think there are probably, I guess, if I think about it for a second, I think there are two different mindsets out there. Number one is there's a mindset out there that you can get rich really quickly, really easily in the stock market. And I think the last six months, six to nine months have really helped it, uh, blow, burst that bubble quite a lot. Yeah. Up up until recently, there was this kind of misconception that you could buy anything and it would all go up. That this, you know, this whole stock market thing was easy and, you know, not to bash on Peloton again, but all the people that invested in Peloton as it was going to the moon are now feeling the pain as it's trading at 12, 13 bucks a share now. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, one of my family members was really getting excited about the stock market and she would reach out to me on a regular basis, asking me about this company and that company and this company and that company. And uh, Peloton and zoom were two of the ones that she was focusing on because that was what all, was getting all the hype in the, in the, in the media. And so she really wanted to buy them and she ended up buying them. She had a Peloton bike and she was a big fan of the, of the, the services and she, she bought it. And at one point, I don't remember where she was with the investment, but she was up quite a lot. And we were talking at, at Christmas about it. And I said, this is going to, this is a fad. You need to get out. It, it, it's going to turn. I'm telling you, it's going to turn. If you look at the financials of the company, you look at the management and you look at the, the history of, of fitness in the stock market, it's never been a long-term growth play. And it could be a short-term thing where you can do well. I, I said, take your money and run. And she didn't. And she held on. And sure enough, it started to tank and tank and tank. And now she thinks the stock market is rigged. And so there's this, and some of my family members feel like that, that they are friends. They all think that it's either super easy or it's rigged. And that it's it's almost impossible for individual investors to to succeed in the market without some sort of inside scoop or inside dope and that there's no that there's some magic to it that it's that it's not something that the average person can invest and do well over the long term which is exactly the opposite of true but part of it is the media drives that narrative of you know all this excitement in the short-term focus on making lots of money in a very short amount of time, for whatever reason, you know, there's a lot of people on Twitter that talk about the casino today kind of idea with the stock market. And I think that's very true. Uh, you see a, a lot of people that get super excited about something because they think they can make money quickly. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest men in the world, has made the majority of his wealth after he turned 50. And he's worth what, 130 billion mm-hmm. or something like that. 
he made, I think, almost 105 billion of that after he turned 50. And I think uh, uh, over half of that he made after he turned 70. So, and he's been doing it literally his entire life. And so it, it's a long-term game. It's not a, I'm going to get in, you know, make my millions and get out quickly kind of idea. And I think there's a misconception out there that that's, that's what the stock market is. It's a casino that's either rigged in your favor or not. And it's something that people can, can make a lot of wealth very quickly. And it's, that's not the case. I highly agree because most people, you know, think also that um, making money on stock market is uh, an overnight gamble, and and most most view it as as gambling because I mean, of course, investing is still gambling in some ways, but that but it's an yes. I, I don't know if it's Ed Thorpe who said this, but it's like an intellectual way of gambling <laughs> because with the with the casino, it's yes. like a fixed odds between you and the house, but but with investing, there's so much factors uh, that is driving the stock price. So, yeah, it's it's a bad misconception also here in the Philippines because yeah, people are always hounding on insider trading and such. But it's 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 it could right. be, but if you choose the the wrong the wrong stocks. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. There's there's definitely this misconception that it that is that it, if you don't know what you're doing, it is gambling. And if you don't even do a, a modicum or a small amount of of curiosity driven in uh, learning about the what a stock is, how the stock market works, you know, when you buy something, there's somebody on the other side that's selling it to you. It's not mm-hmm. just a vacuum. And when you buy individual companies in particular, you're buying a piece of Apple or Microsoft. You're not just buying this little ticker that goes by on the, on your your phone. And so you're investing in a business. And once, I think once you start to understand some of those concepts, I think it, it becomes less of a casino. But when you just look and see that AMC is going to the moon and all I got to do is just buy and just, you know, write it all up, you know, yeah, there are, there are definitely are people that have, have gotten lucky in that casino, but there's just like, there's people that go to Vegas or any other casino and have success one time. But to repeat that time and time and time again, you can't tell me that Warren Buffett is that great of a casino gambler that he's been able to do this well for so long. It, it just doesn't work that way. That's why I'm I'm not really a fan of trading. You know, I, I this is not a gripe against those people that trade because it's it's just a select few that can do it consistently. But the problem with trading or most people in the TikTok space or in YouTube that they they're doing this trading for a living. Yes, you can get like let's say fifty percent return this year. You can possibly repeat that. I mean, if you could, you'll be in in ten years. You'll be the richest man in in the world if you can compound that capital. Yeah. So this right. this is like uh, uh, not an easy uh, or a hard thought for people to really understand that. Of course, it's obvious that there's no easy money. Like with with people like hyping, you know, Zoom or Peloton, they all they are always thinking on on the the upside on how this will th- this will go better but that but always they forget the downside which is the more the more important because as charlie munger always said it's invert invert so always think what will happen what what's the worst thing that can happen always think of the downside so if you check a business model and you can only 
think of a few downsides, then that's that's one you should invest. <laughs> because if you're thinking that how how could this possibly go wrong, not not on the not on the not on the mindset that how this possibly go right, then you're you'll do well off than most. Yes. Yep, totally agree. <laughs> so now I, I want to ask now to how how you pick your own <laughs> stocks. So we can now transition into that one. <laughs> because I just want okay. to ask is because I've been a long time listener uh, in, in your podcast, but I want to ask like, does it differ with how Andrew, you know, do it? Like he wants growing revenues and it pays a dividend because he's he's the drip king. So <laughs> or is it more or is it right. more or less <laughs> yeah. the same? I would say by and large, it's more or less the same. We both are looking for companies that are growing the revenues, that have good operating margins, that have strong balance sheets, that are looking at their shareholders or stakeholders, which encompasses everybody that's involved in the business, whether it's employees, whether it's vendors, or whether it's shareholders, that they're looking at us as partners in their business. Uh I look at all those things. I obviously am looking for companies that generate cash flow and that can do it consistently. Uh, I'm looking for companies that have a business model that I think is sustainable for at least the next five to 10 years. You know, one of the advantages that individual investors have is we have the ability to hold companies for a long period of time. And if you look at, there's been some charts recently. If you buy a company and hold it for one day, you have a 50-50 chance of doing well. If you buy a company and hold it for a week, you have like a, a 55-45 chance of doing well. If you hold a, buy and hold a company for a year, you have like a 60-40 a, a chance of doing well. But if you hold a company for five to 10 years, you have almost 100% mm. chance that you will do well on that investment. And so that's one of the advantages that we have as individual investors. So when I'm looking at a company and trying to determine whether this is a company I want to give my money to, I want to see if the business model, if I think it's viable now and into the future, because if it can't generate cash flows now and into the future, then there's really no point. And sometimes I think one of the things that that Andrew and I will differ on is I'm not as uh, I'm not as adamant about it having to have a dividend. I would prefer it, but if I think that there's a company in a space that I think is growing and has the chance to grow now in the next 15, 20 years, and it doesn't pay a dividend now, but it probably will in the future, I, I'm okay with that. Um, and so. I've also started investing outside of the United States, which Andrew hasn't hasn't done yet. Um, but I'm encouraging mm-hmm. him to look and see if there's anything that kind of fits his criteria. But so far, he's finding you know plenty of great stuff in the United States, so he hasn't felt the need that to do that. Um, I have really gone down. Uh, I, I one of my struggles right now is I've, I'm feeling like I'm getting um, too narrow in my focus. I've spent a lot of time and I say, when I mean a lot of time, I mean hours and hours and hours a day reading about financial companies, fintechs Mm. in particular. And so that's, and it's an area that I've just really gotten fascinated by. And I've made some investments in in companies in that space that I think are going to do really well. Um, and, but I've also tried to, I'm starting to try to branch out. So one of the things that I try to do is 
for me, learning about new companies is like learning a language. And so when I start to get into a space like fintech, I really try to dive into the whole area and try to learn as much about the the sector as I possibly can, because then that'll help me understand the different players in the sector and who has the potential to be, uh, you know, the air quote winner. Uh, there could, and a, miscon- a common misconception is everybody thinks there always has to be one winner. There could be many winners depending mm, on the niche yeah. that they play in. And so anyway, so I guess for me, it's, I do all the same things that Andrew does. I read through the 10 Ks. I read through the, the quarterlies. I, I listen to earnings calls. I take notes. Uh, I try to find other investors that have invested in the same company or are bearish on the company and try to, read about them uh, through their eyes to see what they're thinking about the company. I always try to think about the downsides of the companies like mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier. You know, what could go wrong? How could the wheels come off of this? And in what ways, you know, what am I missing? And that's that's always a question that's in the back of my mind. Whenever I'm reading through financial reports or looking at the numbers of a company, I always am asking, why is this? Why is it like this? Why, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Because I think that helps me connect the dots. And then the other part of it is, is I try to write everything down. And so that I have notes to go back and look at and, and assess what I was thinking about this, that, or thing. And then the, the last part for me is, is valuation, trying to determine what's a good price to buy. Um, and that's, and that's always, that's always a challenge trying to find the right entry point. You know, it's really easy to mm-hmm. fall in love with companies. Yeah. It, it really is. But it's also, you have, you know, for me, I use the valuation as a, as a, a guidepost. If it's just too expensive, then okay. You know, it doesn't matter how much work I've done, how much I love the company. I just, I can't because the price you pay matters a lot. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to you know, invest my money poorly and, and sit on the sidelines for 10 years waiting for it to do as well as I think it should. So I hope that helps answer the question. Do you follow like a rig- rigid um, checklist or methodology? Like if you discover this interesting business model, like how do you start your work? Like for like a fresh start, how do you, do you go through it? Uh, yes, I have a checklist that I use. Uh, I actually just posted mm-hmm. it on Twitter uh, about a week ago or so, <clears throat> so people could see that there. And it's just a, I, I wrote a blog post a while ago about creating a checklist. And I went through a bunch of different checklists um, from different people, like guys like Monish Pabrai and, um, and, and Charlie Munger and other people. And I put together my own. And it's, it's, it's an evolving document. And it's the, the one that I put online is, is kind of a basis that I'll work through. And, I'm not rigid about it in that if the company has a, I'll just throw out, if it has a price to earnings of 27 as opposed to 25, I'm not just going to throw it out because it's, you know, a couple points off. Uh, there may be other mitigating factors that could offset that along the way. Uh, so it, it, for me, it's more mm-hmm. of a guideline to help me learn about the company. Really the, uh, the only rigidity for me is the the valuation part once i get to the valuation part if i've gotten through everything else that and it doesn't trip me out like if i go through the management section of the of the checklist and i'm still okay with the company and i get to the valuation then that's going to be a hard stop but if i get to the if i get to the management section and i notice that they're paying themselves 
a lot in comparison to other companies. And maybe they're even paying themselves when the company's not doing well and they're still giving themselves raises. Well, that's, that's a clue to me that they're not mm-hmm. in it for me and they're not in it for the business. They're only in it for themselves. Or if I see that the company hires uh, a CEO that has a track record of, of bouncing, he, he works for one company five years, another one for three years, another one for four years. He's not in it for the long haul. He's in it for how what, how, you know, how quickly can I make bucks for myself? And that's that's not what I, I want to invest in. So there's just things like that that as I work through the checklist will will be no brainers or will things that will qualify me to to stop working on the company. And a lot of times it's just a too hard pile. I'll, I'll start looking at the. The, the business model, I don't understand this. It's just, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just, it's out, it's out of my realm of understanding and I don't want to put in the work to understand it. It's okay to push the boundaries of your, of your circle of competence. But I think sometimes it's also, it's, it's okay to understand that, you know, Hey, I don't have to buy this right now. We don't have to swing at every pitch. We can, we yes. can pass. It's okay. I, I want to talk more about um, valuations because you mentioned your, that's the part that you're rigid. So I want to ask, like, would you rather, overpay for a wonderful business or wait until the price seems reasonable for you like like with me it's always with costco i i just can't bring myself to buy it at 40 times earnings you know (laughs) right yep no i'm i'm right there with you so i'll give you a tale of two stories then so visa is a company that i've i've followed for quite some time and i didn't buy it until about about a year and a half ago. It was a company that I love, I think is probably one of the strongest companies out there in the world and has one of the biggest moats and has one of the longest runways to continue executing on what they're doing for a very long time. Excuse me. And I, I know there's disruptions out there looming on the, on the horizon, but I don't think that it's anything that's going to happen quickly or soon. I could be wrong, of course. We could always be wrong, but the company's is always expensive. Yes, yes. If you look at the 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 earnings, the price to earnings, it, it's always in the high thirties, low forties. But there was a period where it dropped down to around thirty, and I bounced. I, I I pounced on it, and so for that company, I was willing to pay more for the the greatness of what I thought the company was. It was, you know, like the, the classic, this is a wonderful company. I'm willing to pay up for the earnings for this company, even though normally I would probably rather buy the company at 20 or 25 earn, times earnings as opposed to 30 or 35. But for Visa, I was willing to make that, that not sacrifice, but I was willing to step out on that ledge and jump off because I felt like it was worth the investment to, to buy that company because of the knowledge that I had about the business, the the study that I had done on the company and the the thinking that I had done about what could disrupt this investment. And so I felt like it was a safer bet than making a bet on Costco. So the flip side of Costco, I love it just Mm -hmm. as much as you do. (laughs) And I think it's an amazing company. I just actually just got a membership myself recently and started using it. And it's, it's awesome, but I struggle with it's, it's so darn expensive and for me, I guess I'm more concerned about, I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad company or that there's like these huge risks, but the, the margins are much more narrow than I'm comfortable with. And I also don't see a 10 year 
horizon where Costco is going to continue to grow like it's growing over the next 10 years. Because at some point, the company is going to have to start slowing down on the expansion mm-hmm. of stores. And it, it has a model of offering low, low prices. It has a model of not raising the membership fees, which drives a lot of the, the business for the company. And so unless those things change, and once the stores, once they stop expanding the stores, then the, where's the growth going to come from? And so that's, that's something that concerns me over the long term. And I guess I also think about the idea of I don't have to swing at every pitch. So just because I'm concerned about Costco and I really want to own it, it doesn't mean I have to. And there's other great investments out there that I can buy that I have a lot more confidence in, have a longer growth path. You know, a company like Berkshire Hathaway, for example, uh, Warren Buffett's company, I think has, you know, even though he and Charlie mm-hmm. are older and are unfortunately not going to be with us forever, um, even after they are not yeah, with the Ajit company, and I think Greg will, the company yeah. is still going to do yeah, well. They will do well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're they're yeah, they're smart, smart cookies, and uh, they know what they're doing. And they've tr- you know they've trained on two of the greatest, and so I have complete confidence that that the company will do well long long into the future. So I'm I'm more comfortable investing in something like that than I am in Costco and. You know, am I, could I be wrong? Absolutely. And might I be wrong? Yeah, probably. But, but for me, it's, it, I'm okay with, with not swinging at that pitch. And that's, that's, I guess that's how I kind of deal with it, but it, it's an ongoing struggle. Yeah, uh, and investing is a lifelong, you know, process. It, it never ends actually. That's, that's what it, the exciting part of it. So, no. yeah, I, I was about to ask yes, you also about, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, because you mentioned in your previous podcast, it wasn't. And because I thought at first it was Andrew who owned it, but it was actually you who owns it. So I'm actually going to ask, like, because you said you you, both you and Andrew kind of share that, of course, Andrew more because, again, he's the drip king. But you also like you also like the the company that pays, you know, dividends. But with Berkshire, I I actually don't see any, uh, of course, in the future that they could put out dividends for shareholders. So. I want to ask why? Why did you choose uh, Berkshire? Why did I choose Berkshire? <laughs> oh boy! Um, I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, if you go down, I, if you if you first look at, I think the actual businesses that are operating under the Berkshire canopy, if you will, excuse me, is the they have a lot of fantastic businesses operating under the Berkshire mm-hmm. shell. So you, if you just look at the insurance businesses alone, those are cash generating monsters. Uh, Geico, who everybody is aware of, the little green gecko, the yeah, car commercial company, is, <laughs> yeah. is a beast. Yeah, yeah, it is a beast. But if you step away just from though from that one, they also have all these reinsurance companies under their umbrella that generate just tons and tons of cash. And what, without going into all the mm-hmm. nitty gritty details. Uh, insurance companies generate a float. And basically what that means is that it's the, the cash that's a gap between what the premiums mm-hmm. we pay versus the pay, the premiums that the company has to pay out. And the money that sits, all insurance companies generate a float. Warren Buffett differs in that because they generate so much money, he's able to take a portion of that invested in equities, which earns extra money 
for Berkshire, which goes back into mm-hmm. the coffers of Berkshire, and it, it, it creates this flywheel, if you will, of 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 more money that's being generated for the company. It, it you know it creates assets for the company. It creates uh, more money. The you know the dividends that all the companies that B- Buffett buys, you know Visa, Amex. Wells Fargo, Coca-Cola, all these companies, Apple, all these companies pay dividends. So even though he doesn't personally for his business, the investments that he buys, the majority of them pay him a dividend. And that all goes Mm -hmm. to the shareholders and it all helps generate more for the business. So the insurance companies generate all this. Then you step into the other non-insurance businesses like Berkshire Energy and BNSF, the railroad. Those are amazing businesses. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Berkshire Energy, this kind of shows the brilliance of Buffett. He bought the kind of the founder part of Berkshire Energy about 10, 12 years ago. And he started investing heavily in wind and solar before it became air quote popular. And he also invested in natural gas lines because he understood that those three components until renewables were are a big enough component of electric generation that we were still going to have to generate power some way. And natural gas was probably going to be the choice as a, mm-hmm. as opposed to coal. And that has proven, you know, very, very true. And so the Berkshire energy is one of the largest producers of generation of electricity in the world. And it's a, it's an $18 billion revenue company sitting under the umbrella of Berkshire Hathaway. And most people don't know it exists. And it's a huge, huge utility that's going to only continue to grow. Then you look at the Berkshire or the, the BNSF Railroad, and that is, you know, no matter how much we think of railroads as, as old tech, the simple fact of the matter is, is that things have to go yeah. from point A to point B. And right now, the two most economical ways to do it are trucks yeah. and trains. And until something comes along that's going to disrupt the railroads, I don't see that going away anytime soon. And so that's a, you know, a huge moneymaker for the company as well. And then you have all the retail yeah, businesses. Yeah, the MSM, MSRs. Own, yeah. Like, you know, Dairy Queen and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just all the stuff. It's just, it's nuts. So anyway, and then you got Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger running the business. So to me, all those things just make it kind of a no-brainer um, to, to own. And it's been one of my best performers over the last you mm-hmm. know, two or three years. And it's, you know, probably it's not the biggest portion of my portfolio, but it's definitely in the top two or three. So um, it's a company that I have complete faith in who's running it and what they're doing. So that's that's yeah. why I chose. To but I, I want to ask also, like, how I mean, how do you do the valuations with such a such with Berkshire that is a really big conglomerate? How do you how do you ap- approach it? Like <laughs> yeah. it's so many parts. Like I I, I know I I also read with Christopher Bloomstrand, you know, with Semper Augustus. He does a really good oh, yeah. job in his uh, yeah annual letters. Yes, he does. <laughs> but still, it's it's he always said that it's always a ballpark because he's always being conservative, and he always admits that it's kind of of always hard part to value um, a Berkshire as a whole. So mm-hmm. how do you approach it? Do you like approach it with book value per share or I, I don't know. I, I frankly, I do it uh, a lot the same way that Chris does. <clears throat> I look at, uh, you know, first of all, if for anybody that's interested in learning more about Berkshire Hathaway, you need to read uh, yeah. Semper Augustus's letters from Chris Bloomstrand. Really he, good. He is really the king. Good. He's the master. Uh, he, 
yeah, he knows more about Berkshire Hathaway than <laughs> I'll ever know. He's forgotten more about Berkshire Hathaway than I'll ever know. But so that being said, um, I do a lot of the same things that Chris does. I, I, I look at the relative metrics. So I'll look at something like price to book or price to earnings. I also do what's called a sum of the parts evaluation where I look at, I value the insurance business as one entity. I'll, I'll value the retail businesses as one entity, and then I'll value the equity as an entity and then put all that together. And then that creates a value for the company. And that's what I've done for Markel, who's another company mm-hmm. that's similar to Berkshire on a much smaller scale. And that's something that helps me try to figure that out. Then there's also more intrinsic ways that you can do that as well. Uh, you can use different intrinsic models to value different parts of the business. So for example, for the insurance part of it, I can use a, an excess return model to value the equity of the insurance mm-hmm. businesses. And then I can use a free cash flow model to value the retail businesses. And then I can use an equity model to value the equity portion of his portfolio. And then again, put all those pieces together. And that gives me, you know, a a price point for the company. Now, one of the things that I think a lot of people get wrong, not wrong, but I, I think misthink about valuation. I'm not looking for the exact price. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for a range. Kind of like Chris was saying in his letters, I'm looking for a range. I'm looking for a range of possibilities. I don't, uh, I think some people get so bogged down in the minutia of it has to be, you know, I'm only going to buy it if it's exactly $293.27. No, that's, that's, that's unfortunate. You know, if anybody here is listening to that, please stop doing that. Uh, it is all about trying to find a range of possibilities. Looking at, you know, is do I think that Berkshire is going to grow at ten percent, or do I think it's going to grow at six percent? And what what's going to cause both of those? And what what are the values in between those? And then you can kind of assess the likelihood of, you know, six percent. I think is just too pessimistic, but maybe ten is too optimistic. So eight is a better, is a better rate for growth of the company and then, you know, value it from there. And then if the price is in the range, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't get, I try not to get bogged down in, you know, if the company is selling for 22% margin of safety versus (laughs) 25%, you know, I, I don't care. You know, if it's, if it's in a ballpark that I think is, is reasonable, I'm going to pull the trigger and buy because the the time spent you know timing the market is not going to get you where you need to go it's it's time in the market yes. not timing the market and i know you ha- i know you had a podcast about that recently so um and uh so that's uh, it's very that's very important idea and don't get bogged down in the minutia but that's that's how i try to value a company like berkshire it's it's not easy and it's 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 a challenge uh for sure but I try to use as many models with that company as I can. I, I, I generally try to do that with any company that I value. I'll try to look at a, at, a, at a range of different things to give me a perspective of what I think could possibly be you know, a decent price for the company. It's a really great answer. And I also, I also own Berkshire. I actually, it's a heavy weight in my portfolio. And I, <laughs> I always only... Um, I. I went also all through that some of the parts valuation. I, I, I just, you know, um, use Christopher's Bloomstrands, you know, tables and such as, as a benchmark and his tweets also. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's really hard. But of, of course, 
if you have those kind of management, I mean, I don't want to sound like a Buffett fanboy also, but but he the, that kind of culture, you know, that management and that also the track record to show, plus all those kind of businesses under its wing, especially you know with the with the Berkshire Energy, you know, it's it's a it's a utility company that is private. Imagine if a utility company is private, if because if it's public. You know, most of its um, retained earnings is usually give out as dividends because it's a utility company. That's what the public is expecting. Right. But because it's it's private and it's under Buffett's wing, those returned earnings can be used to you know develop more sources of energy. So that's really what made me really wow. This is really a genius idea. So so yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah um, valuations doing valuations is always uh, a game of probabilities and outcomes. So there's there's always not a correct answer because if it does, it's mo- mathematicians will all, all mathematicians will be rich. <laughs> right? Yeah, they'd all rule the world. Yeah. They? Yeah. So now, I, before I, um, um, I'm taking so much of your time, I'm sorry, but I, I will have a few more questions. Oh, this is fun. But I want to ask also what I asked Andrew um, also that I posted on Twitter, uh, the video. Uh, <laughs> so I asked your co-host, Andrew, about biases. So Dave, what's your worst investing bias and how do you cope with it? Boy, yeah, that's a great question. <sighs> There's so many to choose from. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I think probably... The, the two that I struggle with the most, one is going to be confirmation bias and the other one would be, the other one would be FOMO. Um, those are the two that I struggle with the most. So the FOMO is probably the easiest one for me to overcome, uh, because I have an advantage. Other people don't, I have Andrew. So Andrew, Andrew is my secret (laughs) weapon, uh, to help me with, with my biases because he and I talk regularly about companies, about investments, about our business, what we're doing and all those things. And, you know, he's a, he's a voice that I respect a lot. He's a smart, smart, smart guy. He's much smarter than I am. And so it's really, it gives me a lot of comfort and it helps me a lot when I start to feel like I'm slipping to the dark side and maybe trying to step outside of my comfort zone or, or I start changing I start changing my ideas about why I invest in this company or that company. And so he helps me overcome that, that, that FOMO by keeping me, you know, pulling me back to what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do and focus on what's best for me. So that helps. Now the confirmation bias, that one is harder to deal with because in this world of, of social media with all the, all the information out there, it's really, really, really easy to set yourself up into an echo chamber and, you know, Twitter, perfect example. You can go on Twitter and if you are a fan of a particular company, you can follow all the people that talk about that company and the majority of them are going to be bullish. And so by doing that, and if you're you know enthusiastic about the company and you're following those same people, we're all talking about the same things, all the upsides. We're not talking about the downsides. And that's just as important. You know, like you were saying earlier, you know, Charlie Munger always says, invert, invert, always invert. If you're not thinking about what could go wrong and and trying to balance out the enthusiasm about the company with the possibility of something else going wrong, then you're setting yourself up for, a, you could set yourself up for a fall. 
and YouTube's the same way. Facebook's the same way. Google, there's just so much media out there that, that really can help confirm what you think about something. And you have to, unfortunately, you have to work hard to try to understand the other side of it. And sometimes, sometimes you can find it in social media and sometimes you can find it online, but sometimes you just have to look a lot harder to find the downsides of things. And if you look at the, not to talk about politics, but if you look at, at politics, stepping away from choosing a side, it's very easy to get caught in an echo chamber of that. And the way to you know, break that cycle is to look at both sides of things and then try to understand another point person's point of view. Charlie talks about this. You know, if you can understand the other per- person's point of view better than they can, then that really means you understand the subject. And so that's something that I try really hard to do is try to look at companies or investments from the other side. And something like Seeking Alpha, for example, helps with that because they have, you have all these people writing about companies and some are super bullish and some are super bearish. And it's helpful to read the bearish ones if you are bullish about the company. And likewise, if you're bearish mm-hmm. on the company, it's helpful to read the bullish ones because you can get a sense of what why, why are they excited about this? Cause you, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not always right. And our ideas and our thoughts are wrong lots. <laughs> and so for those kinds of things, help me balance out the confirmation bias. And I try really hard to not be super bullish about companies. It's, it's easy to fall in love with a company for sure. But I think trying to find resources that can help you offset that is something that helps me, I guess. You know, this kind of biases, it's, it's, it's really hard to kind of, you know, admit to yourself also. Like uh, with me, I have a, a big uh, anchoring bias and uh, con- also uh, this authority bias that if a super investor, you know, also have the stock that I own, it's, it's like, whoa, oh my God, it's, this is a confirmation. It's like, it's, it's hard to, um, let go of this biases. And especially if you're, um, acknowledging them because, it, it makes you feel good in, in a sense that uh, it makes it easier to invest, but um, heading them, you know, uh, head on, it's it's not an easy task and it's easier said than done. So I really appreciate your your answer to it. <laughs> so n- now I, I want to ask a last question that I, I, I want to ask on you. Like, I know you've also been dealing with a lot of people also uh, with listeners in your podcast. And I want to ask like, how do you tell, you know, or what do you tell a non-believer in, if I should call them, I'm sorry, <laughs> to convince people in the stock market? I mean, how do you convince a person to invest? How do I convince a person to invest? Oh, that's a great question. I think, I think there's, there's multiple ways that we can do it or people can mm-hmm. do it. Um, the way that Andrew and I choose to do it is by trying to trying to entertain people at the same time as educate them. And most of the time when we're talking about something, it's something that we really believe in and it's something that we feel strongly about. And I think the excitement and the passion that we express, I think comes through in the podcast. And we also don't present ourselves in a way that we're superior to other people. Mm 
or that we think we're superior to other people because we are not. And we try to present ourselves as average people like everybody else out in the world that's trying to get better every single day. And that's really the way that we approach the podcast and everything that we do. And we're just trying to get better every single day. And I think we also try to throw out enough statistics to help open people's eyes that investing in the stock market is the way that they need to go to get to where they want to go. We all want to have money to do the things that we want to do, whether they're now or in the near future or in the future Mm -hmm. future. And the stock market, investing in the stock market, investing in businesses has proven over, you know, hundreds of years now that that is the, the best way to generate wealth. If you think about all the wealthiest people in the world, they are all people that own businesses. Uh, you know, Elon Musk, love him or hate him, he owns mm-hmm. businesses. Warren Buffett owns businesses. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you know, the list goes on and on and on. You know, I'm just, uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm very US centric. So forgive me if I, I missed anybody outside of the United <laughs> States. And I know there's plenty of them. Um, all those people, if you look at the top 10 wealthiest people in the, in the world, they all own a business or businesses. And they may invest in the stock market as well, but all wealth is generated by owning businesses. And if people understand that investing in the stock market, and you don't have to be the greatest stock picker in the world, you can buy index funds and ETFs and invest that way, and you're still going to get to where you want to go. And with a lot less you know, fuss and muss and in a lot of ways easier, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not everybody has the time. You know, I, I understand that I'm privileged. I'm lucky that I get to do this every day, all day long. And it's a passion of mine and I get to do it all day, every day. And I, but I understand that I'm privileged and I'm lucky to be able to do this. Not everybody has that opportunity. Some people are, you know, married with four kids and two jobs and, you know, lots and lots of responsibility and their significant others has two jobs and they're, you know, all trying to balance their lives and, you know, soccer and school and, you know, just life can get crazy. I get it. And so being able to spend, you know, 12 hours a week reading through all the financial reports of Visa, is just not on the cards for some people. And I get that. And so investing in ETFs or an index fund or your 401k is a must. And if you do that, you're going to succeed and you're going to get to where you want to go. And my grandmother has a saying, and I've bored our listeners with many times and I'll share it here (laughs) with you guys, with you as well, is water dripping on a stone eventually makes an impression. And if you look at some of the greatest things in the world, it's because people kept trying and trying and trying. And that's the story of my life. And the Grand Canyon did not happen overnight. It happened over billions of years of water running through the Grand Canyon to achieve, to create what it is. And I think when you're thinking about investing, if you invest and you don't pay attention to your portfolio and look at it five years from now, you're going to be like, wow. What happened? That's awesome, uh, and that's that's the way the stock market works. Is you know, compounding is is one of the untapped 
potential greatest things that's ever happened to to mankind and it's not talked about enough it is talked about in the financial circles but outside of that it's not talked about enough and i don't know about your schooling but mine it was not discussed when i was in school it wasn't something i learned until i was in the banking industry which is a shame and until people really understand the the power of compounding and how much it it can impact their lives it's you know you can, you can you can go online and find you know litanies of stories that will will show the power of it but compounding is really the greatest wonder one of the greatest wonders of the world and i think once people start to understand that and listening to podcasts i think is an easy way for people to consume some of this idea you know and andrew and i aren't preaching at people we're just talking this is what we feel strongly about this is what we're passionate about and i think hopefully that comes through when people are listening and that can help i mean even we can just help one or two people then you know our uh, we've had a great day so that's that's what we're here to try to do and that's what we try to do it's also like albert einstein said that compounding is the eighth the greatest wonder in the world so yeah and also compounding isn't really intuitive you know you don't really um think of it in a day-to-day basis you know compounding is is not uh it's not short term it it takes time and that's Mm -hmm. that's not how humans are wired to think so it's kind of understandable but but yeah i agree with you with doing this podcast you know and trying to spread more financial awareness that how compounding works and how great the stock market is it's it's really great and i could have never asked a, a better uh, answer from you so i'm using those tips also to spread the financial <laughs> awareness to my fellow seafarers that uh, really lack uh, financial education because i also uh in our school it's never had been taught you know it's 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 something that it's quite ironic that it's something that really uh impacts our lives so much and it's not being taught in, in schools so yeah, it's it's not, but yeah, it's better late than ever. So, <laughs> yes, I agree. Before I go to the last question, I ask my guests uh, every end of the show: Where can people find more of your work and or places to connect with you? Uh, well, okay. Well, so we have our we have our podcast, the Investing for Beginners podcast. We also have our website, eInvestingForBeginners.com. That's a great resource to see what Andrew and I are up to, what we're reading. We also have uh, an news. Well, we have you can subscribe to our services, and we send out emails, educational emails, once or twice a week, uh, for people to to learn more about that. If you want to connect with me directly, you can. There's a contact page on our emails, as well as a contact page on the website, and I'm also active on Twitter. Uh, so the uh, IFB underscore podcast is our handle at, at Twitter and I'm active on there and the DMS are mm-hmm. open. So if you have any questions, by all means, please let us know. Um, there we're there to help, you know, how, there to help educate people and, and kind of spread the word if we, if we can. So that's, th- those are probably the best places to, to find out what we're doing and, and what's going yeah, on. I'll make sure to put those in the show notes and I, I highly recommend people to reach out to Dave and he's really accommodating in, in questions and such because we connected in DMS in Twitter also. So to have, this show so i'm yeah yeah i really appreciate it so again this is a question that i like to ask my guests at the end of the show and i will admit again at every episode that i do with guests it's it's a rip off on another podcast but it's it's really good not to ask so here it is so (laughs) so what uh so dave what worries you and also excites you about the future 
And what's the thing that keeps you awake at night? May it be a financial trend or anything, you, any field. Oh boy, um, that's a t- that's a that's an interesting slash tough question, and it's a good one. Oh boy. Um, okay, so what keeps me up at night? Um, I think I think the thing that I I guess I worry about the most is is making sure that I have prepared my daughter for the future, whether that means that she understands how money works and understands how to be a good member of society and not be a taker, but be a giver. Um, I, I worry that, you know, that you know, I want her to do well in life and I want her to do better than I do, just like all parents want our, our kids to do better. <clears throat> and I want to make sure that when she goes out to the world, that she understands that she needs to not just take from the world, but she needs to give back. And whether that's teaching people things that she knows or whether that's just being a, a better steward of, of her own life. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I guess I worry about uh, because she's 10 now and she's starting to become her own person with her own <laughs> opinions and her own views. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's probably shocking. It's shocking to me. I'm sure it was shocking to my parents that they don't think the same way we do. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so those are things that I guess I, I, I worry about. Um, you know, other things that I think excite me about where the future is going is as I see the acceleration in technology and the potential that it has to make all of our lives better, I get excited about those kinds of things. And I'm not just talking about monetary gains. I'm also talking about just the idea of the, the, the advances in medicine and the abilities that they could have with some of these vaccines that they've created that help us that were helping us with COVID and all the, the junk mm-hmm. with that, what other opportunities could they have? I read recently that, that these, some of these vaccines could help eliminate malaria, for mm. example. Uh, there's other, other opportunities out there that there, there could be possibilities that it could eliminate some cancers. So uh, there's, and uh, they're just, they're just, I know they're just knocking at the door on this. And so all those kinds of things, you know, excite me. The, the idea that we could start going back to the moon and go out into the universe excites me because, you know, I am a big fan of Carl Sagan oh, and I love the movie yes. contact. And there was a, there's a line in that movie, you know, that, you know, do you think there's you know life out there? And uh, well, if there isn't, it's an awful waste of space. I mean, I, <laughs> I really feel like that. And so, you know, without getting into conspiracy yes. theories, it's, it's just, you know, for us to continue to try to advance a, as a species, you know, I think going into space, I think is something that is intriguing to me and excites me. Uh, I don't know about anybody else, but just seeing the pictures from the, the James Webb oh, telescope yes. recently of the, of the different planets here in our solar system, I, just blown away. Yeah. And so just all those things, I think, really excite me. And I think, um, I guess the last thing that, that I guess I worry about as an American citizen is, and again, U.S. centric, so forgive me, um, is the discord that is going on in our country, uh, worries me without, without picking sides, the, just the animosity that is being shown by both sides of the aisle 
um, not just politically, but just just generally among people. I just feel like as 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 a society, Americans have gotten nastier to each each other, and we've forgotten why we're here, what we're doing, and what makes our country great, and how we can help other people in the world. And I I worry about that. I worry about you know the future, of how that's going to play out, and until we until we find some sort of unifying thing, I worry that it's just going to continue to escalate. So I guess those are some of the ideas that kind of pop into my head when you ask me that question. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really lovely and heartwarming answer, especially about your daughter and you being optimistic on the future of tech and also a bit on the downside of the, uh, the US politics and, and such. And uh, I I know I took a lot of your time now. It's this is this should be my longest <laughs> podcast I've ever recorded. And I <laughs> hope you enjoyed the, the, our conversation because I really did enjoy. Oh, yeah. And I hope I could get you again in the future because I, I like this having this kind of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was it was a pleasure. I I enjoyed it. You you do you ask great questions. I I'm not going to lie. I'm going to take uh, I'm going to take some ideas from what you were asking <laughs> me today and see if those are things because those those are fantastic questions. Uh, frankly, I think you ask better questions than I do. But, nah. <laughs> um, I, I enjoy uh, I I enjoy I enjoyed our conversation. I would be I would be honored to come back and talk to you again anytime. Mm-hmm.